Hello, and welcome to the Templar Podcast. By the 14th century, the Knights Templar may have had as many as 7,000 knights and serving brothers. The order held at least 870 castles, preceptors, and subsidiary houses spanning over most of the countries that made up Western Christendom in their day. Records from 1318 reveal pensions being paid to former Templars in 24 dioceses, as well as in York, London, Canterbury, Dublin, Tournai, Liege, Carmen, Cologne, Magdeburg, Mainz, Castello, Asti, Milan, Bologna, Peruga, Naples, Trani, Cyprus, Aragon, and Mallorca. By the 1230s, the order had built up a sizable fleet of the Mediterranean, capable of ferrying men and supplies to Spain, Italy, Greece, and ultimately supporting the order's work in the Crusader states. Its international nature and large-scale resource management made the Templars ideal financial agents for popes, princes, and nobles. Today, the Templars survive in the minds of modern people through a combination of popular myth and peer reviewed historical research that everyone ignores. I've seen a lot of conspiracy theories regarding the Knights Templar. They've been depicted as pagans, as transatlantic navigators, as treasure hunters, and as Dan Brown's intellectual property. If you're listening to the podcast, chances are some of this myth is why you've tuned in. Personally, I've always found the myths surrounding the Brotherhood to be as interesting as any other conspiracy theory. But what has always caught my attention was the things that I've heard about the Brotherhood that was presented as factual. The idea of a hybrid of monastic order and military organization dedicated to protecting pilgrims in the Holy Land. Now that catches my attention. I guess I could ramble on about my reasons for being interested in the Templars, but frankly I'd rather just get stuck in. If you want my whole philosophy shtick regarding history, just listen to the first part of my assassin podcast and substitute the assassins for Templars. Don't worry, it's rather easy. Ubisoft do it all the time. So then, how did the Knights Templar begin? Answer, we don't know. Yes, as unbelievable as it sounds regarding one of the largest Christian organizations in the history of Europe, we have no solid sources on where they are from. It is suspected that this has to do with the seemingly unimportant origins of the Templars. The chroniclers of the time did not care for writing anything down regarding them, so it seems their origin story was not a very interesting one. Hugh Dupin himself, who is recorded as the first master of the order, was never biographed, unlike other founders of monastic orders such as Francis of Assisi or Robert of Arbrissel, founders of monastic orders were usually immediately biographed post-mortem on the off chance that they were considered by the church for canonization. It is suspected that Dupin was never considered as a possible candidate for sainthood due to the controversy of the Templar's nature as both unholy knights and holy monks. So, without any contemporary writings on the original Templars, we are forced to rely on chroniclers who wrote at a later date and always with their own agenda. I think this speaks volumes for the nature of history. We never have the full picture and we can never be 100% sure. People like to pretend that there exists a definite narrative to human history. They go around with a one-dimensional perspective on a certain period, often taken from documentaries or light reading or even cultural exposure. They behave as if history is a subject of certainty and solid facts. But history is more fluid in reality. The ideas we hold today are based on accounts that often have little to no credibility. History is a sea of bias and lies and truths, all changing over time as more evidence is unearthed, proven and discredited. And the fact the fact that the ideas of the present are based on our perspectives of the past says much for the world we live in. In the end, all we can do with history is try our best to unearth as much as possible and interpret it with an open and reasonable mind in the hope of constructing a picture of our past that is as close to the truth as possible while realizing the folly of such a task. Anyhow, there are four main sources for the origins of the Knights Templar. 
some of which write in the second half of the 12th century. The Templars themselves were mostly founded in the first half. First up, we have Michael the Syrian, Patriarch of Antioch in 1190. To quote directly, At the beginning of the reign of Baldwin II, a Frenchman came from Rome to Jerusalem to pray. He had made a vow not to return to his own country, but to become a monk after helping the king in his war for three years. He and the 30 knights who accompanied him would end their lives in Jerusalem. When the kin and his barons saw that they had achieved remarkable things in the war, they advised the man to serve in the army with his 30 knights and defend the place against brigands rather than become a monk in the hope of saving his own soul. Now, I don't mind this account. It's vague in some areas and specific in others. This may be the author's attempt to leave out information he could not verify, or it could be an indication that everything he's written was made up. The only problem is that it suggests that the unnamed Frenchman and his associates were advised to abandon the path of the monk and pursue a life in the army of Baldwin II. The Templars were monks. They had all the contemporary trappings of a religious order. Their only difference was that they were dedicated to a life of violence. Let us examine another of the four accounts, that of the Englishman Walter Mapp. A knight called Pan, from a district of Burgundy of the same name, came as a pilgrim to Jerusalem. When he heard that the Christians, who watered their horses at a cistern not far from the gates of Jerusalem, were attacked by the pagans, and that many of the believers were slain in these ambuscades, he pitied them, and he tried to protect them as far as he could. He frequently sprang to their aid from well-chosen hiding places and slew many of the enemy. So according to Map, the first Templar was a Robin Hood-esque wayward knight who would spring to the aid of hapless Christian pilgrims fending off their Muslim antagonists single-handedly. Oh god, as I spoke that aloud I could almost hear the Hollywood and video game executives salivating. Obviously this is a historical embellishment spun by Map as a means of capitalizing upon the wild imaginations of a curious audience. Kind of like a medieval Ubisoft. No, just kidding. Unlike Ubisoft, Map's fantastical misinterpretation of history was at least original. Now we turn to Bernard, a monk at Corby who wrote his account over a hundred years after the founding of the Templars, though I feel obliged to mention his account was supposedly based on an account written by a nobleman named Ernoul, who lived at the same time as Map and Michael. When the Christians had conquered Jerusalem, they installed themselves at the Temple of the Sepulchre, and many more came there from everywhere, and they obeyed the prior of the Sepulchre. The good knights there took counsel among themselves and said, We have abandoned our lands and our friends, and have come here to elevate and glorify the rule of God. If we stay here drinking, eating, and hanging around without doing work, then we carry our weapons for nothing. This land has need of them. Let us get together and make one of us master of all, to lead us in battle when it occurs. So Bernard suggested the Templars had came about after a few knights decided to band together and prepare for battle. I have a little bit of a problem with this account, and to to explain it, I'm going to do a little thought experiment. Imagine you have spent the last few days eating, drinking, and hanging around in a church in the hot and humid, cultured city of Jerusalem. Then one day, someone got up and said, Hey guys, all this eating, drinking, and hanging around is pretty pointless. I think we should all band together under a leader and go out into the baking sun to fight an endless horde of irate Mohammedans. Now, I don't know about you, but I'd probably have something to say to this guy. Probably about two words equivocally said with a single finger. All right, perhaps I'm being a bit silly. To be honest, the people of the Middle Ages are nothing like the people today. They were untarnished by the cynical consumerism that embodies the general mindset of modern man. No, the people of the Middle Ages exhibited a genuine belief in the divine, and were not beyond dedicating their lives, if not deaths, to the service of the greater glory of God. Nevertheless, I have my doubts about this account. And so, finally, 
There is the Count of William Archbishop of Tyr. In that same year, some noblemen of knightly rank, devoted to God, pious and God-fearing, placed themselves in the hands of the Lord Patriarch for the service of Christ, professing the wish to live perpetually in the manner of regular canons in chastity and obedience, without personal belongings. The leading and most eminent of these men were the venerable Hugh of Pan and Godfrey of St. Omer. As they had neither church nor fixed abode, the king gave them a temporary home in his palace, which was on the south side of the Temple of the Lord. Their main duty, imposed on them by the patriarch and other bishops for the remission of their sins, was that they should maintain the safety of the roads and highways to the best of their ability, for the benefit of pilgrims in particular, against the attacks of bandits and marauders. It is the account of William that is most widely accepted by the academic community. His account of the Templars comes from his own reading of sources and his questioning of people who were alive during the times when he was not. Nevertheless, William had a slight bias against the Templars due to his condemnation of the supposed unfair manipulation and exploitation of privileges that were committed by Templars of his own time. So, it is by William's account we stand. Knights Templar were founded in 1118, according to William, and sought out the Patriarch who was Warmond of Piquiny at the time. In the same year, Baldwin II had risen to the throne of Jerusalem and donated a part of his palace to the new fraternity. Baldwin II was resident in the Al-Aqsa Mosque at the southern end of the Haram al-Sharif, or Temple Platform, in Jerusalem. The proto-Templars were given a square nearby for them to pray the Liturgy of the Hours. The interesting part of this account is the apparent duty tasked to them by the bishops and patriarch. They should maintain as far as they could the roads and highways against the ambushes of thieves and attackers, especially in regard to the safety of pilgrims. So, apparently we have a group of men journeying to the Holy Land with the hopes of taking monastic vows, and then being told by the clerics, draw blood in the defense of pilgrims. One must understand the irony of this. It was a widely held belief within Christendom at the time that violence was a sin. The life of a knight was in direct contrast with the life of a monk. It was a matter of a life of sin versus a life of holiness. For a cleric to accept one's vows and then send one on the path of the knight in the name of redemption of one's sins was unheard of at the time. It was controversial in the least. William of Tyre doesn't make clear who it was who suggested this. Michael the Syrian suggests it was Baldwin II, who was aware of the need for more swords in the Holy Land. From the charter of the Castellan of St. Omer, we hear the suggestion that it was the Patriarch who came up with the concept. Whoever it was that invented this radical concept of an order of warrior monks, the fact that this idea was thought of is telling of the desperation of the times. By the 1120s, the Crusaders had established their states of Antioch, Tripoli, Jerusalem, and Edessa. The Crusaders had a hold on these states, and seemingly were confident enough to try for expansion, such as with Baldwin II's doomed siege of Aleppo. But this didn't mean the roads in between these states were secure. One was in danger of being attacked as soon as one left Jerusalem. No, seriously. There are reports in the 1120s of Saracen raiding parties riding all the way up to the gates of Jerusalem. To leave the city, you needed an armed escort. Nobody does better to describe the dangers facing pilgrims than the Russian abbot Daniel. Daniel visited the Holy Land in 1106. His account paints a picture that makes the modern-day lands in question look peaceful. So based off his accounts, let's take a virtual tour of the Holy Lands. So to start off, we land in Jaffa, a port city west of Jerusalem, and we stop at the site where St. Peter raised Tabitha. Leaving Jaffa, we have a six-mile trek to Lydda, where St. George's resting place is. But first, you're going to get mugged by Egyptian raiders from Ascalon. After dragging yourself to Jerusalem, you might want to pay a visit to the River Jordan. Take some water with you, because the way is without springs. There are also brigands. 
Lots of brigands, so let's hope they're thirsty. Otherwise, you're in for another bad day. By the way, en route to site of Jesus' baptism, don't be afraid to visit the Red Cistern, the place where Jesus told his Good Samaritan parable. The irony, believe me, will not be lost on you. Journeying out from Jerusalem to the southern town of Hebron, one might notice a nearby fortress full of Saracens. This might be a good time to bring up the Good Samaritan thing. I'm sure they too will appreciate the irony as they beat you to death. Well, that's enough of that. Let's finish up my point with a verbatim account of the area near Bashan, which Daniel passed through on his visit to Galilee. And this place is very dreadful and dangerous. Seven rivers flow from this town of Bashan, and great reeds grow along these rivers, and many tall palm trees stand about the town like a dense forest. This place is terrible and difficult of access, for here live fierce pagan Saracens who attack travelers at the fords on the rivers, and lions are found here in great numbers. This place is near the river Jordan, and a great water meadow lies between the Jordan and the town of Bashan, and the rivers flow from Bashan to Jordan, and there are many lions in that place. Well, it sounds like Daniel had quite the exciting visit to the Holy Lands, at least a traumatizing visit in regard to the quantity of lions. I think I'll end this podcast here. Until next time.